it's Thursday, the 2nd of June, at the time of recording, and this month I'm delighted to be speaking with Oliver Braid. Um, Oliver is one of the most intriguing artists that I know. Uh, he produces vibrant, challenging work, full of subtle allusions to different philosophies, but, but always work that's grounded in the social anxieties that we all suffer from. Um, and more importantly, there's a kind of kernel of mystery to all of his work, a core of uncommodifiable kind of strangeness. Mm. Since about 2017, mm -hmm. uh, Oliver's artistic career has been on a kind of hi hiatus, um, and uh, he's been uh, writing a book mm. uh, in secret. Not, you know, his uh, his blog is kind of hidden away, and he's also been uh, working with vigilantes mm. uh, on the internet, uh, which we'll get onto a bit later. Um, but first, I just want to talk a little bit about what's happening this week because. This week, I was reading on the GSA website, 112 new artists graduated from the yeah, art school yeah. in fine art. And uh, I was wondering if you have any advice for that new cohort of artists. I suppose, for me, I think I, I went into art in like quite a damaged way. as quite like um, a confused person. And I had a really abstract... Um, idea of like what an artist's trajectory was which is all about like making exhibitions these kind of cut off exhibitions which come from an artist and then they put in a space and people absorb them and stuff but they don't necessarily like have um super practical grounding in things like it's one of those experiences where it feels like, oh, it should be kind of unquantifiable or it doesn't have to be just very, really old-fashioned ideas, right, about creativity, that it's like this kind of Kantian paradigm of purposeless... purposeness or whatever, purposeful purposelessness. Um, and I think that there's the potential for lots of people to end up quite stranded in that because you can do that all the time. If you can financially support yourself, you can continue in that way. But is that enough for people? Do people feel like self-worth through that? And do they feel connected to lots of different people through that? I felt very like, had this very small tribe, like this kind of art tribe. And yeah, at the same time, I felt like polarized from that. So it was like, just, I don't know, always problematizing it at the same time as being in it and um, maybe once you begin to escape from that really narrow conception then I don't know possibly it just changes what your path might be as an artist or what your desires might be and like how you judge yourself I guess there is the idea of the romantic sacrifice of, you know, the artist dying early, having yeah. left a perfect body of work. Yeah. Um, I I guess what you're saying is it's not worth the sacrifice. I just don't... Maybe not that it's not worth the sacrifice, but there are just alternatives to having to sacrifice. Like, I, I definitely 
think that, like, for a long time I had this idea that, like, if I made the right artwork in the right conditions, then it would resolve my own problems. Um, but that is, like, in a way trying to therapise yourself. Um, or using... And like what we were saying at the start about feedback, like using feedback about your work almost as the answer that would come from a therapist. So like you're putting this stuff out and then like hearing feedback from people which you could use to kind of progress, but actually that feedback is so diversified and like art is like more complicated to judge than writing I think because like art can be so much more ambiguous whereas yeah I guess one of the reasons that I've been attracted to writing is that it feels like you could get away with less (laughs) or that you have to be more honest but also more clear about what that is that you're being honest about yeah I think that idea of like wondering what people think about you um, I think is inherently like based on some lack you know, like we're missing some love yeah. or we're missing some affection. So we have this kind of desire to be told from by strangers. Yeah, definitely. What, Absolutely. Um, um, so take us back. What um, inspired you to become an artist in the first place? When I was 13, uh, my dad, on the advice of my art teacher at the time, took me to Sensation and that kind of crystallised to me the idea that, like, being an artist was a viable career, or, like, that was the thing that I was going to do. But also at that time, like, at the identical time, so 97, was, like, I'd just gone into high school and I was getting bullied really quite badly, and that happened, like, over the whole three years of my high school, like, very um, aggressive, isolating, homophobic experience... And that, I would say, was almost the main contributor. So before before that, before I went to high school, I really didn't have any artistic ambition. It wasn't something that I'd ever really considered myself as doing. Like, I was interested in writing, and my parents were like, my mum was kind of encouraging of, like, writing, and I did a lot of acting and stuff like that. But I never really had any particular ambition to go into, like, a creative field. I wanted to be a dancer when I was really young. And um, because I grew up in a really, like quite homophobic household as well I knew from a very young age that actually being a dancer wasn't going to be acceptable so I did ballet for like one year on the um proviso from my father that I would also do kickboxing which I didn't do I did like one lesson I was terrified like so I grew up being really really scared of men like, really frightened of men. And so, like, when I got to high school, I just couldn't really talk to any boys at all. Like, really awkward around them. And that just really set me apart. And, like, obviously, I was just, like, quite a flamboyantly queer child as well. And I'd known, like, that I was gay from a really, really young age. And I already had all this neuroticism around that. Because, like, not my mom. I mean, my mom was worried and acted anxiously which contributed to my anxiety but I think like my father was like really very homophobic like from a very young age like I can remember like it was like in the first house that we lived in so it's before I was 10 so kind of under 10 definitely being brought up around this idea that my dad would rather have like a dead son than a gay son and like 
that what he'd love to do most in the world is get a barn and fill it full of gay men and then cover that barn in petrol and set it on fire and watch them all burn. It's really fucked. And, um, yeah, he was born in 1940. And so, like, in the mid-50s, when he was in his kind of teenage years, like, him and his friends' favourite hobbies were, like, going around queer bashing or beating up migrants or people of colour that had moved to Birmingham um, during that period of time. So he came from, like, yeah, very aggressive, kind of hateful situation. And then um, I was also always brought up with this idea that, like, people who crossed my father came to quite sticky ends, like, people disappeared or people ended up in wheelchairs, stuff like that. Like, because he'd always... I mean, when my mum met him, he was much older anyway and, like... All of his friends, it was all, like, he was really associated with, like, the Birmingham nightclub scene, like, and obviously that always attracts, I guess, like, kind of a gangster crowd or something like that, like, people running the clubs and things like that. So, from a really young age, I definitely, like, never knew, like, when I went to bed, like, I always sort of thought, like, maybe one day I'd just, like, wake up in the middle of the night and I'd just be, like, taken somewhere and done away with. And, uh... Do you remember his reaction to sensation? Um, yeah, interesting that you would ask because he was asked to get out of Tracy Emin's tent because he'd crawled into the tent. And um, the other thing that I really remember is that he really loved Ron Muick's work or he was really, like, taken aback by that in the way that lots of people are because it's, you know, like this hyper-realistic sculpture like, and that's always something that people, even if they're not interested in contemporary art, they can always get on board with hyper-realism, right? Because that feels like, to lots of people, that's the... Um, the Holy Grail, right? It's, it's like Mimesis is like... Yeah, if you can do that. And how about the young Oliver? What were you particularly impressed by at Sensation? I think Tracy Emin was really, like, for me, at that time, very, like... Because, I suppose, yeah, 13... Tracy Emin and... Um, as an artist, and then Sylvia Plath as a writer. So, like, confessional, because I didn't really have any way to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about in my own life, so I guess I was quite inspired by that. But also, just for a really long time, I really identified much more with women... And, like, definitely as a young kid, I didn't know, like, if I wanted to be a woman. And I spent a lot of time, like, I guess doing things that, like, people would think were traditionally associated with uh, feminine roles. But actually what that is is just me as a young child trying to, like, come to terms with my own difference, comparing it with, like, just the data that I had around me, which is, like, lower middle class, middle England... You know, um, yeah, there, there weren't really any queer people or, like, any kind of representation. And um, I suppose, like, a big experience for people of my generation as well is that we grew up in the middle of the beginning of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. And so when did that advert come on TV, like, maybe 87, this kind of classic John Hurt advert, so I would have been, like, three. And I think, like, I was probably about... Well, I was before it was before school that I told my mom that like me and this boy in the neighborhood had been like doing things together, and it was like for her a real source of stress. But in retrospect, I think about that as like in her as an adult also being tied in with this new fear that had been propagated by like the Tory government, right? That all gay people were spreading diseases, or that this was going to have that death would be brought to all of them through this kind of through their own 
fault. And uh, yeah, I guess they were big Daily Mail readers and stuff like that. So I suppose like there's a way in which as well my parents like didn't really understand art or didn't see the value of it in the way that if you're a Daily Mail reader, you might. Um, And I think because I'd already problematised their authority through their homophobia, uh, I just fell into it in that way as well. It's like, oh, well, it doesn't matter that you don't understand it because you don't understand there's so much that you've already, like, not understood about me that, like, it, it would seem like... So maybe, like, sensation was shocking... Mm. And maybe as a conduit to allow yourself to be yeah. shocking, yeah, definitely, without also taking on the extra weight of yeah. confronting people's prejudices. Yeah, uh, that is interesting. And so, um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of those kind of early projects towards. Uh, graduating and you know around your um you know first kind of work that you were doing at university um mm. or when you were graduating maybe in class yeah I'm gonna, gonna just try and like revise it a bit I guess like so even I guess I spoke before about like still not really being able to talk to men when I went to school like male people feeling very like cagey around them and that really carried on for a really, really long time. Like, by the time I got to Glasgow, I was definitely in a place where I could speak to men. But it was only really just quite recently. It was only really probably two years prior to that, like, that I'd begun to feel comfortable. Maybe when I was about, like, 21, 22, I could deal with male people if I didn't know them. If they were people from my hometown... I still, like, could barely make eye contact with them. It's like, very um, inhibited. And I guess part of my own neurosis for a long time was always about trying to work that out and trying to work out ways that I could find to, like, speak to men or understand, like, men-ness. Um, but there's always um, this, like problem with authority or like there's this problem that's carried on of like that I think like because I didn't initially feel like understood or accepted or I was kind of questioning of my earliest authority figures I think that's definitely carried on as well and so I was really drawn to always in art people who were like doing something that seemed naughty and naughtiness was like a really important idea for me it's quite a childlike idea and I feel like in lots of ways like I am still quite stuck in my teenage years. Um, but yeah, just before graduating from my undergraduate, so in like 2005 or something, 2005, 2006, was when I first read Claire Bishop's essay on antagonism. And at the time, although I mean, I wouldn't have really got the finer details, and who knows even now if I've really got to grips with them, the idea that being disruptive or antagonistic could in some way be legitimate and have, like, some kind of, like, theoretical grounding um, definitely resonated with me and I think definitely resonated with... So after I graduated, I moved to Liverpool um, to work for the Biennial and I met other people who that essay had really resonated with and began to work with them um, on some early work, which I guess, like... 
took antagonism into account um, or played quite a central role in the works that we were making. Yeah, give, give us an example of an antagonistic work. That you um, we made a piece of work called Hitler on the Green, which is all about Hitler's time in Liverpool. And so we made these mannequins that people could decorate to look like Hitler, however they imagined him. And then the plan was, it never came to fruition, it stayed in the gallery, but the plan was that we would do this walk through the city centre of Liverpool with these like mannequins of Hitler uh, on these crucifixes that we'd made for the gallery uh, and do a tour of places that are talked about uh, in Beryl Bainbridge's book, Young Adolf, which kind of also charts like Hitler's time in Liverpool. So, yeah, I mean, but you can see already how it's, like, very childish. Like, what's the um, what's the kind of proto-controversial figure that you can invoke? And it's like, oh, well, I'll choose Hitler, right? Um, but there were also works that, like, spread blood over people when they came into the gallery or would just directly attack people. And then, like, a lot of fake press releases that me and my friend Roxytopia would write and she would illustrate which are all about kind of artworks that would hurt people or that would chase people or that would alter their state so one of the pieces was like a homophobic racist acid party where like me as I guess a gay man and then Roxy as like um she's like British but with South Asian heritage would host this party like an acid party with loads of homophobes and racists and see the outcome of that kind of interaction as well so yeah, like, all of those works are about, like, difficult social interactions with people. And I think, I mean, I can't really speak on Roxy's behalf, but I think both of us came from a place of, like, social difficulty or feeling excluded in some way uh, or feeling conscious of ourselves around other people, around, like, a kind of straight white mass of people. Because I feel like, I mean, that's it's interesting you're talking about these because... Um, I feel like there was a time when art was the only place you could do these things. Art was this special kind of zone of freedom, temporary autonomous zone. Yeah. Uh, whereas now, I feel like, you know, every other YouTuber is pranking people, mm, mm. winding people up, or, you know, transgressing some social boundary. Uh, and I wonder how that has, like, happened that with... You know, it's kind of permeated out into the culture, whereas the actual art world is the opposite. It's very puritanical now. Yeah, definitely. And I think, like, um, around that same time as well, there was definitely suddenly this new burst of optimism, both culturally but also in the arts as well, I think. Like, suddenly it became distasteful or a bit unfashionable to be provocative or controversial. It was much better to be, like, cooler and more removed from that. And um, I think at the time I felt like that was actually just like a denial <laughs> or like um, people just weren't being honest and they were just trying to suppress their aggressiveness. But actually, like, in hindsight, I suppose, maybe what people were trying to do was realise that already that this stereotype of the, like, controversial and, like, polarising or oppositional artist was actually also quite damaging to the people who were undertaking that work. Like, I think for a long time we felt like, like purging all of that badness through creativity, I mean, this is like quite a 20th century thing, like purging all of these things would have this effect that it would heal you or that it would make you better. I mean, like, actually what's really weird is, you know, I talked about Sylvia Plath before and she's almost like this archetype where people look at like 
has she used her mental health or her um, uh, difficult emotions and put them into her work and people think that that was like a healing effect but she's like I mean she's not a great example of someone who healed herself right she did the opposite she talked herself into um, reaching the point of no return and so yeah again like a youthful me would think of that as being really heroic but now that we're at a stage where like we're older than Sylvia Plath uh, ever reached yeah now I'm kind of looking at it as an older person and thinking about how that younger person could have been helped away from that it's difficult because I I still feel the pull towards that and I feel like to grapple with those emotions is like part of art but it's what it's actually part of is like how I came to art or like how certain people come to art and I guess like lots of people come to art um in a way where they can't necessarily deal that well with people or the outside world so they would create this kind of internalized kind of almost autistic version of a reality that they can cope with right where they're in control of it and stuff and rather than that helping them it can also sort of just keep them stuck in that stage I mean like I said earlier there's hundred, literally hundreds of people graduating um, the art world is notoriously competitive yeah. and actually there's not many people that ever reach any kind of level of you know financial stability yeah. through making which is really what people who are ill actually need like they need some stability they don't need to be continually in this position of like up and down us or feeling like their whole self-worth is based on whether other people like want to pay them to do something or even approve of what they're doing. But I do think it's, it's a little bit like playing the lottery. Yeah, it's really like playing the lottery. Because you can be as talented or, you know, as, you know, you can produce the best work, but there's no guarantee in the art world that you'll ever get any attention yeah. for that work. Um, and I suppose you've got to do something to get attention. And whether that's through being antagonistic or through knowing the right people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, schmoozing and networking, as people do relentlessly yeah. in the art world. There's there's always got to be some way that's outside of the quality of the work. I think that, this whole idea of schmoozing and networking also contributes... I mean, I can't say this across the board, but in my own experience also contributes just to more instability never knowing if people really like you or whether they like you because you're being really really hyper nice because you want them to like you or um because they want something or you're interesting at the moment to other people like yeah and I guess like the more so recently the more that I've just mixed with people who are just in like you know, they do a job and then they go home and they've got a totally different life from that and they don't have any, like, emotional connection to their work. Like, yeah, people seem, like, much more stable and, like, satisfied, I suppose. But on the other hand, do you play the lottery? Because mm. <laughs> I think, you know... Yeah, I do. Even the national lottery <laughs> yeah. is still a hope. And I think playing the art lottery is yeah. a hope, but with some added, like danger <laughs> I suppose the the worry is like or not well it's not a worry but I think like there's definitely something that then becomes again I can only really speak for me but like yeah there's this built-in like idea of like how shameful it is to give up 
like to give up on that hope. But yeah, I guess I mean that's um I think that's something that keeps people really hanging on in there. Can you give an example of any kind of status anxiety and rivalry that you found in the art world? Yeah, low. I mean, like, um, I was thinking the other day, I was in the post office and I was thinking about this day when me and like three or four of my first year MFA colleagues went to post our applications for New Contemporaries. And I just remember feeling like so stressed, like that this really mattered. And one of my other colleagues was like, oh, yeah, it's just like being in a lottery. <laughs> and I remember being like, fucking hell, how can you feel like this? So like this really matters. It can't be a lottery. It has to be me. Like, you know, um, and. Yeah, like just that feeling. I, th- I mean, I suppose everyone deals with competitiveness. But. um It often means that, like, in the art world, everybody that you even feel friendly with or that you actually do have a genuine friendship for is still your competitor, Um, even if they're doing completely different work. Like, yeah, um, I I don't know, there's no rules or no path to follow. Like, there's just no predictor at all. So, yeah, I think it kept me in a kind of constant um, state of stress... And then even when you do get selected for things that you want, I guess, like, because of the way the mind works or something, it suddenly becomes unimportant, or you've got it, and, like, it's this thing that you've wanted for, like, three years or something, but now that you've got it, you sort of feel like, oh, there must have just been a mistake this year, or there must have been a really low-quality pool of applicants, or... Um, so, for me, anyway, I could never really enjoy it either way, like, um, and... I think all of those feelings led me to, well, quite early on, like 2012, so like only two years after graduating, I was already beginning to think about this idea of like, what would it be like to make work in a way where you had already decided that it wasn't going to be successful or interesting to anyone, and whether like that would be a helpful move, whether that would help you like have a a calmer mind and like uh, produce work that you didn't have to pour all of those ambitions in or feel like oh well not many people paid attention to that so it must be crap because that's not the truth right and like um, I think there's definitely like lots of artists that I've been really drawn to in the past who aren't necessarily like these massive successful artists, but I feel like they're really successful, but I just couldn't see that in myself. And maybe like lots of people feel like that as well. Like, um, I remember you were the first person that I found talking a lot about instrumentalization, mm. you know, this idea of turning everything into something that has a utilitarian use value. Well, it's really right. So, and it's really interesting to think about like, the usological turn in contemporary art at, in relation to instrumentalization and professionalization of the arts and how like post 2008 suddenly everyone had to start justifying their worth in in like a different way um and that trying to find a we're really skipping ahead here but in a way like it's relevant that like trying to combine usefulness in a way that still 
takes antagonism into um, under its wing or is shaped by it is kind of what led me to paedophile hunting because there is a way in which it's useful or it, it presents itself through the guise of usefulness, right? But it's completely unprofessional and a lot of the time it's not really instrumental. Like, it's a really, like, convoluted process that doesn't have, like, clear lines and you're not working with people that have, like, professional ambitions. Um, so now we're on the subject, can you tell us how you first got into uh, paedophile hunting? Uh, yeah, I can kind of summarise it. I'll try and summarise it. So, um, obviously I was always, I think like quite a lot, I was making work that was like, that involved people and that involved surprises, kind of unpleasant surprises quite a lot. And also involved like the way that people use the internet, um, and often to like track down people or to negotiate with people through that kind of medium. And I was surrounded by people who were really at that time trying to like what their interest was in like making money by using creativity to solve problems, right? To go into communities and like teach them how to make jam or make napkin rings or something. And then that would seem valuable and useful and and worthy of like financial compensation and like, um, So, yeah, it's kind of the reactive part of me that definitely was like, right, well, I'm going to find something that, like, seems like a community engagement project in some way, uh, but is also still really problematic. And um, I think, like, from 2015 to 2017, which kind of, like, covers the kind of last three main exhibitions that I made kind of, like, in the traditional format... uh, because I always have this kind of craft side to my practice, quite labour-intensive. And I think lots of people do this, where, like, if you're doing craft work or hand-led work, you can kind of end up, like, also listening to podcasts or watching documentaries or something to, like... Yeah, I I don't know, keep it going. I remember going around Um, your flat once and you had on, like, all the series of Big Brother, mm, just mm. one after the other... Whilst working. Full episodes, working away, sewing or... Yeah, and I I think, like, in the studios at GSA and on the undergraduate, that's very common that people would be, like, watching whilst... Or or listening, listening slash watching while working on whatever it was. So, yeah, at that point, um, I was already... Oh, so I'd, I'd just left the studios that I was working for and I'd set up my own sort of... Um, exhibition environment part physical and part kind of in my mind and one of the things that I proposed to do was to work with Stinson Hunter who was like so he's not the first paedophile hunter in the UK right but he was like a very significant paedophile hunter at the time because the documentary that Channel 4 put out in 2012 about him so I'd already written this um, Creative Scotland application that I was going to do a community engagement project and bring Stinson to Glasgow to do a paedophile hunting sting. And then, so that was all locked in, and then suddenly Stinson just disappeared. And since then I've learned that, like, after the documentary, he got a lot of money through crowdfunding, and there's there's various theories about what he did with that money, but he basically never did any hunting again, so he stopped replying. 
And then uh, isn't there a documentary about him on Netflix at the moment? Well, it's the re- it's the it's same, same document. Yeah, okay, they've just okay, put okay, it they've sure. just put it on there for now. Um, but um, so then I had to find another paedophile hunting team that would be able to come and do that. And so I had to start researching lots of teams. And at that time, kind of 2014, 2015, was when there was beginning to be like lots more paedophile hunting teams who'd seen the documentary and who were developing their own practice based on that work. Um, And so then I arranged with this group in Newcastle called Dark Justice, who were quite a big team at the time, that they would come and do the work instead. But then their legal team advised them that they couldn't because the laws were different in Scotland. So that presented like a real big problem for me because I felt like every team that I ask in England is going to say the same thing. Uh, So... And did you tell all these people that you were an artist? Yeah, that's how I was pitching it. Like, like they were being brought into this, you know, middle-class world. Because the the world of paedophile hunting is, like, seems very, like, working-class, very kind of, you know, white, uh, blue-collar. Yeah, there's definitely... I mean, I think that's definitely an assumption, but as you get deeper into the community, you actually see that there's lots of people from different worlds using pseudonyms and different ways of not being recognised and actually like I've been on Skype calls or group calls with other teams and stuff and you can see into their houses or you and when you speak to people there are some quite posh people involved in it okay um of which I guess I'm like in the mid-range or something um but yeah so I needed to find a team that would come to Scotland that wouldn't mind working around the Scottish laws and so this would have definitely been in 2015, which is when Shane Brannigan and Internet Interceptors both came into the paedophile hunting world and they really captivated me because they were completely aggressive, like the most aggressive and unprofessional um, scene that I could possibly, like, tap into. Or like, you know, like, these people, they were still doing the work based on a very similar form to other teams, but they were doing it in a way that, like, felt like yeah, quite shocking or, um, but very captivating. And so when I was sewing and, and, and doing crafts, I would just begin to watch stings or like, and I was doing research for what team I would invite. And, um, I became obsessed particularly with internet interceptors as a team and their leader, Julie. Uh, I've always had a real obsession with like, women's voices and like hearing women's voices in my head and like speaking or repeating their phrases like I love doing that and um yeah I just got really obsessed with Judy so I decided that like I sort of wanted to invite them to come to Scotland and do this but simultaneously the more I involved myself in the scene the more I realised there were lots of people who really disagreed with the idea that hunting should be seen as entertainment and that hunting should be like, that hunters should be paid. So that made it difficult for me to then say, oh, I could offer you a fee or come and do this thing. for." And, um, yeah, I guess both Shane and Julie, like, the thing that sort of titillated me a little bit, if you like, was how frightened I was of them as people. Like, how, like from their videos, like, how unreasonable and unnegotiable everything seemed from them. Because there's a moral absolutism mm, with mm. these people. Like, they've they've discovered uh, these people online through decoys, through, you know, like, um, they're not quite honeypots, but they're, like, 
they will have a conversation, an adult will have a conversation mm. with someone online and that person will reveal themselves as being interested in sex with an underage yeah. person. And then at that point, the team, the sting operative, what do you call the? Yeah, the sting team, I guess we could call them. The sting team, they get together, they arrange a date and then they will go out and confront mm. this person with the chat logs. With a view to getting this person prosecuted, right? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. In, in summary, but for the people online viewing it, like you say, there's a kind of extra thrill of like confrontation, antagonism, the things we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, actually, as well, when we, like, so I said titillate and you said thrill, like, there's definitely, but maybe we should think about it more as just like there is an emotional reaction of some sort. Because I think, obviously, there's a huge variety of people that view it and for lots of different reasons. But we know that quite a lot of people in the community or people who watch and support the community are, like, abuse survivors. So I guess there's a way in which people feel, whether it's true or not, people feel like it has a cathartic value. Um, yeah. Some kind of justice for the, the pain they've suffered. Or... Yeah. And seeing people held to account. And I think, like, I could see that in myself, even though, like, I didn't go through, like, physical sexual abuse. I do think there's still a way in which, like, if everywhere you go as a child, like, you walk to school or you go to school or you come home from school and you're just constantly questioned about your sexuality and your sexual preferences, like, um, day in, day out... For me, that is a form of sexual harassment. Like, to have to walk past a building site on the way to school and, like, have grown adult men asking you, like, if you give them a blowjob or if you fuck guys and stuff when you're, like, 13, 14. To me, it's really creepy that people are doing that. And, like... Um, and then to go to school and have to answer the same sort of questions from people of all different years. And then to go home and feel, like, this pressure of my parents, like, trying to weedle it out of me like so yeah I think I could really tap into like some catharsis of seeing people who did that how to account um, and I, I don't know if it felt like something very different from the rivalry and status anxiety of the art world where you're kind of hanging out with people that are collaborative I guess there's a little bit of ego you know, um, oh well, I think I mean that's the them. big thing in the um, in the community engagement scene, right? Or in that side of art, people aren't doing it from the kindness of their heart. They might, you know, it's better to maybe be doing that than to do like lots of more destructive things. And maybe those people feel better about their actions than I do now about mine. Um, but yeah, I would say they're still. I've still like stood in nightclub queues with people who are involved in that kind of practice and then being like why are we in a queue does no one know who we are that kind of you know like so which with artists or with Peter Hunter? with artists or with kind of you know they're not artists but like or they wouldn't identify as like but they're like social creative practitioners or something like so I feel like it's an opposite world in the sense that the art world you basically need 10 really important people to give you validation and they can make your entire career, mm. whether it's a gallerist, a curator, you know, some administrator, Creative Scotland or something, they can make your career, just a few people. Whereas, you know, some of the videos of these, you know, vigilantes, like, will get hundreds of thousands of views. They're kind of mass yeah. entertainment, right? 
um, but like with no gatekeepers at the top kind of giving people their bad, you know, gold. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I suppose the whole point is about like, well, right, but then actually over the years, gatekeepers have re- or self-appointed and self-struggling gatekeepers appear at every single stage of it. Like, I don't think there's probably not a single team in the country who haven't claimed at some point to be, like, the best team or to criticise other teams for their lack of professionalism. There's a really fascinating debate that came out of Peter Far Hunting and, and one that really captivated me is this idea of, like, the professional turn in Peter Far Hunting. So after... or From 2017 onwards... Teams that had watched earlier teams started coming about and proclaiming themselves to be, like, professional, professionalised teams. And then there was this point between 2017 2018 particularly where there was big, visible debates where it would be discussed during stings, like, whether people were being professional or whether they were deliberately being unprofessional. And then, like, there was a bit of a backlash between teams that were claiming to be professional and claim, and teams that were deliberately thematizing unprofessionalism as a way to say, well, actually, the professional system didn't work and that's the whole reason that we're here in the first place. So why are you people, like, trying to bring it back to claim to be, like, professionals? But... I mean, it's... people will be listening to this and they've probably never really heard of this topic. It does seem like a kind of underworld... Well, not an underworld, but like a very specific niche of people mm. interested in that and probably most people either haven't heard about it haven't followed it they don't i mean if you if you look online there's plenty of stories in the sun yeah so if you read the sun you'll definitely know about this stuff but if you read the guardian maybe not so much well we were in the guardian, <laughs> in the guardian. and in the times and i think in the herald yeah. and in the independent i guess one of the main reasons that pedophile hunting exploded so much in 2017 early 2017 is because in late 2016 that's when facebook introduced live streaming Mm. and so suddenly live streaming is like a really seductive way to watch right and you can talk directly to the people so like pedophile hunters aren't just doing this thing they're also constantly reading live comments and getting feedback from viewers on whether their behavior is acceptable or not um yeah it's an interesting that it's a different type of clout you know, like mm. this kind of instant feedback. You know, you see sometimes in these streams this kind of flood of hearts. So people will be yeah. hearting away. And I guess people are looking at that when they're doing their live stream. And it just Getting a good feel. It, well, yeah, yeah a justific- justification. Validation. Right? And... Yeah, I've definitely, I've been there. I've been on both sides of it. So I've definitely been there who's been someone who sat there just pressing the heart button on repeat because like I've loved the performance um although lots of people aren't thinking about it in that way right or well they are enjoying it as a performance but they probably would think of it as like an imperformative well no they probably wouldn't think about that but like there's a way in which it's in performance right like and it's um what's happening is really happening even though we're seeing it as like an entertainment it's also like a real slash useful entertainment. And I think, like, again, one of the ways that kind of those proponents of usership, like Alistair Hudson or Stephen Wright or something, would talk about it, is, like, a one-to-one scale work. So, like, it's not a work that proposes to be something. Like, it is actually that thing. Um, yeah, but I've also been 
the person who's been holding a camera and stinging someone and watching the reactions. And it can be really like, for me, like the big thing as soon. So I was shied away from being the person that would lead that. Like, I don't have that kind of personality. I'm definitely not going in in like a shouting, screaming way. But after everybody else got arrested and banned and I was stuck in a team without anyone who could lead it and I had to do it. Um, then even that process, like, yeah, I guess like all I could really focus on on the screen was receiving loads of criticism because in the paedophile hunting world, people would just be like, who is that talking? What is it? Is it a boy or a girl? Why does that man sound like a woman? These are the main comments that came for me. You know, no one was interested in the paedophile anymore. Like, it seemed like, yeah. And so like, you're, I guess, trying to do this thing. You're under quite a lot of pressure and you can instantly see all this like really critical feedback. It's not completely true. There were also lots of people who were really sweet to me. But yeah, I guess it's natural for me to be drawn towards focusing on like more critical sides or like um, things that maybe confirm my own anxieties about the way that I am in the world. Yeah, I'm, fa I'm fascinated by this idea of getting feedback and whether you treat that feedback as just noise or mm. it's something you're going to act upon. And I think the more you act upon people's feedback, the more you become a prisoner yeah, definitely. to other people's eyes. Yeah. But, but the fact that it's instantaneous rather than, like, you know, spending a year making an art piece and then you might get, like, a, you know, two-paragraph review mm. in, a, in a, you know, free newspaper or something yeah. like that. Like, what are people's levels of feedback you know, in terms of, you know, different qualities of work and how much input. Now, you're working on a book. Now, that's a huge amount of effort for totally uncertain rewards. Yeah. So is that a kind of trying to escape this instant gratification? Well, that form, yeah, I think that that form definitely, for me, um, seems to answer more of the criteria of, like, what would it be like if you just had to work on something without any real idea of of how it would be received or like not knowing whether it would even be published or whether people are interested in it or not and I've really really struggled with it like I'm like I'm I'm definitely like I feel like that is part of one of the reasons why I like I struggle with the writing more than I struggled with other things I also don't have the same sort of atmosphere around me I guess like when I was making exhibitions for a long time like I was always in a studio with lots of people who are really like kind of supportive of what I was doing and like I already had an idea of like what my output was like and how it was received stuff like that and then in hunting like you're always around a team of people that always you know there's disagreements a lot of disagreements <laughs> but you're always around a team that like and and I mean for me in paedophile hunting like I guess I was kind of like quite a conscientious and professional worker in other people's eyes because I had like a background of like understanding how project management worked or like and how I had to work with people a bit whereas now like yeah I wake up and I'm just in my house with my cat and like I just sit at the writing station and like sometimes I'm really like fuck that is dead like I've definitely written something great there and I love it and I can feel really strong about it but other times as I'm writing I'm almost like I'm almost totally aware that it's not really coming out right but because no one's read any of it, there's no way for me to even know at the moment whether the stuff that I feel really strong about is actually great or whether it's really 
overly complicated. I mean, I've got a feeling that it's overly complicated, verging towards purple nurse. Maybe my idea of like working in an insignificant way has just completely failed. Or I've just learned that I need people. Um, because I just to um, frame this, so in about 2014 or something, you did a talk called Certainty of Insignificance. Well, 2012, Neil. 2012, because it the back. idea comes through the Ellie and Oliver show. Ah, okay. So and, this um, talk, I mean, you can see it online. There's like a two-hour version. Yeah, um, that's a bit like, that is 2014, 2015. Okay. Yeah, so there I is, so it did stretch out. I mean, there's a Petra Kutcher version written up that you can read. But it's a very compelling presentation and talks about like um, Quentin Crisp's idea of happiness and some of these like positive psychology people that were kind of around at the time. So, yeah. you know, Daniel Gilbert, I think. Daniel Gilbert, Mikkel High, High. All those um, guys who were around talking about happiness and fulfilling lives. And in, the, in this talk, you make this kind of Pascal's wager... Um, which, you know, Pascal's wager is like, let's believe in God, because if it's not true, we don't lose anything, but if it is true, we get to go to heaven. Brilliant. Mm. But your Pascal's wager is like, well, if everything is insignificant, ultimately, then all the things I do are kind of liberated from stress and anxiety. Mm. Right? That's yeah, right. it's definitely a way of trying to get around status anxiety, and I think, like to put it into context like it's just like it's coming to me like maybe just two years or a little under two years after I graduated and um all of my friends and everyone that I was surrounded with I feel like were just like quite caught up in status anxiety but maybe I was projecting it partially you know like but definitely close people that I would talk to who actually on the surface were like working as artists and you know they were in this they were basically doing all the things that we wanted to do and that like I'd always envisioned doing but still haunted then now by this idea of like who's the most visible or whose work is going to be like best received and stuff so I suppose the certainty of insignificance is like about working from the premise that whatever you do will not be received or will not be visible or will be insignificant in the general scheme of things um, and so, yeah, it's a way of trying to negotiate status anxiety, right? But by almost just removing the idea of status. And I don't know if it necessarily removes the anxiety. <laughs> so remove the status. Yeah, but keep not the anxiety. anxiety. Oh, really. <laughs> uh, but that's really, I mean, it is interesting because I think I, it, we all have like these ideas sometimes that unless we put them into practice, we never know whether they work in reality or how reality reacts yeah. how to our ideas. Um, and I think you, you only really know whether an idea has any value if you've tried it for a good, you know, maybe a year, two years, yeah. I don't know. Like, um, I mean, this is over a decade now. Like, wow. this is almost like the 10-year... We're past the... Because it's April 2012 when I first... Certainty of Insignificance kind of first comes into my mind. A decade of insignificance, but then yeah. I think, well, maybe actually we've got ideas that don't work, and you know, like, how yeah, do we decide? I mean, I would say actually, TCO, I, as we shorten, certainty of insignificance <laughs> comes to me in 2012, April 2012, but I continued making exhibitions until July 2017, so it took me another five years to even be brave enough to really like 
try and acknowledge it. I did experiments with it, but I was terrified of it. And then, like, I guess I finally took the plunge. So it's almost like it's actually only five years of, like, truly experimenting with what it is to be, like, dissolved as an artist. Um, and it's, you, you made it clear to me you're not doing a Gustav Metzger-style art Yeah, there's not an art strike, right? It's really not an art strike. Like, I sort of consider what I'm doing... It's still an artistic experiment. Like, this is still a creative experiment, even if it's, like, leaving me in a really difficult position and there's no, like, real outcome of it. Like, um, you know, there are other precedents of artists pausing or, or doing different things, right? I mean, Duchamp playing chess or something is a classic, right? And it feels like that's as much a part of, like, the way that we understand his practice as everything else. Um... And how does it relate to actual mortality? So, you know, it's all very well having artistic ideas of immortality, mm. but, like, actually people do die. Yeah, sure, man. And you have to live day to day. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, you know, maybe Duchamp, it's, like, displacement activity to play chess all day. And, mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, um, for me, I suppose, like... I didn't just do paedophile hunting, right? So I also, like, took my first ever full-time job. And that seeks into... So, like, the last exhibition I made was all about funding a show through your own money. Um, the Trustafarian... Trustafarian Vanity Project is, like, the last exhibition, which I think people thought of as, like, really negative and, like, the, the sentiment is really negative. But actually, like, the show itself is was quite light and... Um, really from my perspective anyway really enjoyable you know like you have to go on a skateboard under a really low roof to look at all of the drawings and then you go into like basically like a ginormous version of a tombola uh where you sit inside and it spins around but it feels like you're spinning around and you're watching this video and then like a lizard is born out of an egg at the end of the Session of it's spinning. a lizard that is the last lizard to have a third eye yeah it's like a version of a Tarina? Tuatara? I can't remember what it's called now, but yeah, it's one of the last uh, living creatures to still be born with a a third eye. Yeah. And there Um, was a massive dreadlock hanging outside. Yeah, a huge dreadlock that it looked like you could maybe climb up onto the balcony and go into the exhibition. Like, there's still, I think, like lots of physical fun in that exhibition. Um, And it's not really that didactic. You know, there's a manifesto, so it's, it's positioned as if it's come from a collaborative group called Trustafarian Vanity Project who fund their own work by working jobs. So, uh, like, I guess the other thing that I was really interested in at the time is, like, the idea of the fake collective. Because collectives had such a resurgence, it feels like in that cultural moment... They all won the Turner Prize. Yeah, exactly, right? And, um, And I often, definitely at that point, like, I'd just been around too many groups of, like, collectives or people who work collaboratively and seeing that, like, that... There's a sentiment evoked by it, right, of communality and um, a positivity or, like, you know, working together with all these people and it's amazing. But actually, like, all of the same neuroticisms and stresses, I think, exist in those groups as well. Um, I mean, I'll try and show some photos of this exhibition. I didn't get to see this one because it was in Bristol, I think. Mm. Um, but it's amazing. You know, it looks amazing. Like, there's a kind of uh, 
thrill of seeing Ashley, your former flatmate, now in Australia, mm. um, inside this uh, kind of tombola thing you're talking about. But, um, you know, like, I feel like there's a loss in the universe when these projects are no longer made. Mm. So part of the reason, you know, that I always wanted to do this interview was in the hope that, like, somehow it would, like, push you to make these, uh, you know, amazing events that, like, Mm. brighten my life, at least. But I think the event that's, like, it feels like that the book is, like, the only next logical option. And, um... I guess, like, I, I hope they would contain the same amount of, like, joyousness, but also problems uh, that some of the other works have had. But I feel like unless I can... I know I've said this to you before, but I feel like unless I can get past that stage, nothing else will really come... Or I feel like I can't justify anything else because I went out in a way where I was, like, so critical of, of so much, like, making of exhibitions and people just naturally assuming that that would be the format that they would work in and all of these kind of, like, assumptions, I think, that people make when they go into being an artist, that they're going to work in a certain way. Um, the only way that I can really... not necessarily apologise, but um, be clear about my own experiences with being critical of that and then maybe wanting to come back to it or something is by writing it out. Um, yeah. So I don't like, I, I don't really think that what I'm doing at the moment is like making a switch into like, oh, I did this and then I'm going to become a writer. Like I actually think like what I hope to do is continue just being an artist and that like writing this book is like, a step towards doing that but I also don't know at the minute what being an artist might look like like maybe it looks like getting a job but bringing to that job everything that you would bring as as an artist like um yeah because I'm still I suppose like yeah the other thing that I did apart from so we just covered it a little bit with like in order to fund the last exhibition, Trust a Fair and Vanity Project, I really did get my first ever full-time job, and I'd never done that before. And um, <clears throat> it's like, by trying to escape the kind of crude or um, ever-changing professionalism of the art world, I actually landed straight into, like, real professionalism and had uh, I've had some, like quite frustrating experiences of what it is to be in the world of work and like how little people really value individual creativity in the world of work and like yeah well, it's kind of difficult to even do that experiment of like what is it to inject yourself as nice or you learn that you have to tailor yourself and that's part of the deal of working and I suppose like my big piece of positive learning from being in those kind of environments is to begin to understand how, like, not everybody uses professionalism as a way to shut things down or to control things. Actually, like, there is a version of professionalism which is almost like an art form in itself and really requires discipline, um, which has become perversely quite interesting to me. Like, yeah. Mm. It's one of the great sadnesses, I think, that reality TV has become commodified so much and things like Love Island are 
populated by basically professional, professional reality, reality people, TV yeah. and TOWIE type things. Whereas there was a brief moment where just a random... Reality innocence. Insecure person would go on hoping for some fun yeah. or validation or something. Um, I think, I don't know if it's that season where Cameron won, where they decided they just wanted to oh, get... Oh, yeah, that was too normal. Too normal, and it was, like, too boring. And, I mean, I remember the year they they allowed books, like, the first year... Yeah, first year they had books and musical instruments. And like... Craig Phillips read Richard Branson's <laughs> autobiography. I remember it really clearly. <laughs> and they quickly decided that, no, you know, more challenges, less reading. Smaller was... space. More confined spaces, less food, <laughs> harder tasks. Yeah, um, but it made me very conscious of, like, the way they were speaking to me and updating me really reminded me of the way that artists speak to me and update me. Like, And it really took me back to that time of, like, going out on a Friday night to private views and, like, your main topic of conversation would really be, like, a barrage of all the projects that you were working on or, like you know, subtly letting everybody know that you're, like, working and that you're working in a certain way and that means that you're a success and that they should, like, have some respect for you or, you know, whatever it is, like, that... But really what you're doing is just reassuring yourself of yeah. that, of those facts so that everyone that you meet is just, like, another opportunity to reassure your own anxieties. And, um... Yeah, I guess it felt a bit like that with him last night, that actually, like... Yeah, when I came home and did some research on... Because, like, the big thing was that he'd been in, like, all these movies. And he has. He has been in lots of movies, but, like, in a lot of supporting roles. But the way it was positioned wasn't quite like that to me in the verbal, you know. So I guess, like... Yeah, everyone has that, like... Oh, well... There's lots of hurt people that go into Big Brother as well, right? Seeking, I guess, like what you were saying before, like fun, but also some kind of validation. Like, if you can win Big Brother, it would mean, like, that the nation loves you and that, like, people who made your life hell at some point will have to eat their words. And, like, I definitely really felt like when I was a kid and just, like, getting picked on all the time at school that, like, if I could become a really successful artist, like, that will show them. And um, I think that mentality has kept me really trapped in that age as well. Like, constantly... Like, it's foolish to be a 30... I'm about to be 38. It's foolish to be, like, nearly 38 and to still be thinking, like, fuck, what if I never made those headlines and then those people can never see how wrong they were? Like, you know, like, it's insane. But I suppose, like... It feels like still the only way that I can get over that or move on from it is to, like, persist with a certain sort of insignificance or to accept that insignificance and accept that I'm okay as I am and that I don't need to be significant. Um, I mean, I was writing last week about what I call total integration, which is, like, integration of all your cringe, all your embarrassment, all the things that cause you kind of some anxiety. Mm. Just sit with them, but... I was reading about Alcoholics Anonymous and apparently what they do is they have to go back and uh, meet the people that they've hurt in the past and confronted them. And I was imagining like going back to some kid that I called Specky when I was nine years old and apologising mm. 
you know, because I still feel a little bit bad for calling him Specky. Yeah. You know, I had this little dialogue in my mind about saying, oh, you know, I wear glasses too now. Like, yeah. I'm Specky. We're all Specky. Yeah. And just him going, who are you? Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> the other thing, right? That sometimes you spend so much time neurotically thinking about these people that actually, like, I've probably forgotten anything that happened between you or even, like, who you are, like... And yet they become so significant in your own um, psyche. But you wouldn't like to go back and confront the bullies? I just don't know if there'd be really any point. Or, like, um, I suppose I'm also realising that, like, there's loads of people that I've picked on as well. And that's, like... I think, like, I could have totally dealt with that situation if I hadn't also having to be slightly dealing with it at home. And I think I remember being, like, really stressed as a kid because the bullying was all homophobic in nature, that talking to my parents about it would have revealed this thing that I was terrified of. So I felt like I was put in this, like, really awkward position on both sides. Like, um, yeah. And so I think that was the thing that kind of trapped me, that I didn't have any um, way to just, like feel acceptance of myself like I could communicate to my parents what was going on slightly and they resolved it or they you know they did what they could to resolve it but it could never be completely open like well why is this happening oh well because I'm definitely gay like you know um and uh yeah so but I I do sometimes fantasize about apologizing to people but um and maybe like the book is like there's ways in which there are like apologetic notes in there but there's also still a consciousness that actually like sometimes you're right to be pissed off with people or to like to react in a certain way to people I can see how my own anxiety has made me overreact to stuff but I don't know if apologizing would be like psychologically the right thing to do there are some things that I think yeah, are really cocked up there, really hurt people. Again, it could be something that I spent much more time worrying about than the actual person that I think has hurt. Yeah. If you can forgive others, then you can also forgive yourself. And I don't, or you know, like, um, and I don't think you can have one without the other. I guess it feels like those are the things that should be really important to work on, rather than trying to compose a great sentence or you know, make an excellent installation or something, like, um, yeah, my therapist was speaking this week actually about, like, how whenever we go into the internal, what I'm drawn to is talking about, like, the decoration that surrounds things in the internal or um, patterns and design features and things like this and how all of this decorative thought is really, like, protective or distracting strategy from myself um yeah and so I can see like how yeah art became like a defense but I don't really need that defense because I'm not actually in that situation anymore even if my mind thinks or part of my mind still thinks that I'm a 14 year old or that I'm trapped in that stage I'm not and my mind and my body has to like 
become acclimatised to that. And I think that's partially, like, why I'm frightened of, like, what would happen if I continued working as an artist in the same way, because it might make it harder for me to escape that. And that's why I think I feel a bit triggered around, you know, like, when we went out recently and then you introduced me to that artist, in, I feel a bit bad for her. Maybe I should apologise for her, because instantly, as soon as you did, I could feel something shift in my body. I could feel much more, like tense and defensive straight away like um yeah so I am still I think it was just the fact that you've both been to Falmouth and I was trying to like in my mind that was a connection I hadn't thought about mm, no, that's I, interesting. I, I don't know anyone else apart from you two have been to Falmouth so it wasn't so much the fact that it was artists but um yeah I guess uh when you move in or you go to certain venues, everyone's going to be an artist yeah. in those venues. I mean, but... I've been hiding from it, right, for a really long time. I'm grateful that you took me into those places. Like, when I thought about it afterwards, I feel like, OK, yeah, it's good to just, like, to not be frightened of it. We did some aversion therapy. Yeah, in the I mean, it did feel like that. Um, and, but it was like hanging out in a space, and I quite like hanging out in galleries and not looking at the work, really, mm. and just chatting to people, but knowing that ambiently I'm surrounded by things that people have put loads of effort into. I don't know, that that's something that I quite like. Yeah, it's like being surrounded by pressure, but also not having to acknowledge it or something. And or it's just like there. Value that systems, things that could be worth lots of money for arbitrary reasons. <laughs> yeah, and they're just backdrop. But, well, thank you so much for taking the time Thanks. out of your day to, to speak with me. It's been a pleasure for me. I hope, I hope you've yeah, enjoyed great. it too. It was great. Thank um, you. And I hope you, the listener, enjoyed it. Um, if you want to check out Oliver's work... Um, Go on to Google and search. There's plenty out there. And uh, anyway, I'll see you next time.